Ordinarily, I don't like doctor visits. It always bugs me when the nurse insists on me taking off my clothes. It seems no matter the ailment, the first words out of the nurse's mouth, disrobe down to your underwear. It reminds me of the man who went to see his doctor with a sore throat. And as soon as the nurse walked him into the waiting room, she ordered the man to undress. Although he objected, the nurse insisted, it's protocol. Well, after undressing, the man looked over and he saw another fellow in the room. He also was sitting there in his underwear. He was holding a box in his hands. This disgruntled patient, he looks at him and he sort of mumbles to himself, this is so humiliating, all I've got is a sore throat and I have to take off my clothes. The other guy turns to him and shakes his head and he says, stop complaining, buddy, I only came to deliver a package. (laughs) Oh my, the trials and tribulations of visiting the doctor. And yet over the next several months, you and I are going to the doctor. We're going to have a regular appointment with Dr. Luke. And we too will be disrobed. Not of our clothes, don't worry. But Luke is going to undress our misconceptions and our false assumptions and our prejudices. He is going to introduce to us the real life Jesus. You see, Luke was a Macedonian doctor and a friend of Paul. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul refers to Luke as the beloved physician. Many people believe Luke traveled with Paul as his personal physician. Luke's gospel is full of medical terminology and details about Jesus' humanity that only a doctor would have observed. One author writes, A pastor sees men at their best, a lawyer at their worst, but a doctor sees men as they are. Luke focuses on the humanity of Jesus, and he dispels any myths we might hold of Jesus not being truly human. Luke assures us that, yes, Jesus was a man. Thus, he understands and he can comfort men. Luke prefaces his gospel here in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. Luke, of course, is referring to the other gospels. Authors Matthew and John, they were among Jesus' original disciples. Mark's gospel was probably Peter's account. The testimony of Jesus, Luke says, came from eyewitnesses. But Luke was not only a doctor, he was also a historian. And thus he adds, It seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Scholars suppose that it was during the two years that Paul was in prison in Caesarea that Luke researched his gospel. From Caesarea, he could travel to Galilee, And he could go down to Jerusalem. He could interview the eyewitnesses. He could track down the reports. Imagine Luke's interviews with Mary and with the shepherds. 
with the Roman centurion, with the officials there in Pilate's court. Imagine a doctor speaking to Lazarus, a man who was dead, and yet Jesus raised him up again. Imagine Luke finding and then discussing with the lame man his healing. Luke focuses on Jesus' childhood in a way that the other Gospels don't. Luke highlights the role of women in his Gospel. It's from Luke that we learn the habits of Mary and Martha. Luke is the only Gospel who mentions that short guy who climbed up in a tree. You remember him, Zacchaeus? Luke's investigation must have been exhaustive. In fact, his Gospel includes over 40 different facts that appear in no other Gospel. This is why Luke tells us that he had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first. And Luke addresses his gospel to an individual named Theophilus. Legend has it that this guy was an ugly, ugly fellow. At his birth, the doctor looked at him and said, This is the awfulest looking baby I've ever seen. Theophilus, and the name stuck. Well, seriously, Theophilus' title, most excellent, was common among Roman officials. It could be that Luke's gospel and its sequel, the book of Acts, also written by Luke and addressed to Theophilus, were actually part of Paul's legal defense before the Caesar. That would mean that Luke, the longest gospel was really a legal brief. You know, it's also possible that Theophilus was the rich man who funded Luke's gospel. Ancient Roman art and literature and history were often supported financially by a wealthy benefactor. In return for his support, he was mentioned in the work by name. The books of Luke and Acts fit the pattern common at the time. If this is true... It's interesting that the largest single contribution of the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, was brought to us by a rich Roman who used his money to fund God's work at enormous personal cost. I mean, think about it. He funded Luke's travels all over the Mediterranean world. Theophilus came out of pocket to hire and to subsidize a well-educated doctor and historian so that he could go out and corroborate and compile an orderly account, he says, of the life of Jesus and the beginnings of the church. Who better than a doctor to validate these healings? Who better than a historian to piece together a timeline? Theophilus saw what a contribution he could make by putting this gospel together, by financing it from his own pocket. We owe Theophilus an enormous debt of gratitude. And Theophilus sets an example. You know, serving the Lord, it doesn't have to mean quitting your job and becoming a pastor or a missionary. In fact, it might mean getting really good at what you do and becoming successful in the workplace and making lots and lots of money, then using that money to support God's work. Trust me, we could do a lot more if we had a few Theophiluses running around Calvary 316. Luke 2 is also a great example to us. Rather than dropping out of the university and attending Bible college, serving God for Luke meant finishing his education, becoming a doctor, being a historian, and then using his skills for the glory of God. 
Theophilus was a businessman. Luke was an academic. Both were successful in the secular realm, but both used their gifts to the glory of God. Well, verse 5 begins Luke's account. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abiyah. His wife was one of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Zacharias and Elizabeth, they lived a happy and a holy life. There was just one thing they lacked. Verse 7. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. Got a book at home by Jeff Foxworthy. It's entitled, You're Not a Kid Anymore. The book provides suggestions for knowing and identifying that you're getting older. Maybe you can relate to some of these. You're not a kid anymore when you no longer laugh at the Preparation H commercials. (laughs) The family Christmas party gets held at your house. The only reason you're awake at 4 a.m. is indigestion. You say the words, turn down that music. (laughs) You're getting older. You enjoy watching the weather. You write thank you notes without being told. 8 a.m. is your idea of sleeping in. You answer a question with, because I said so. You know you're getting older. And then finally, you wear black socks with your sandals. Boy, my kids hate it when I do that. Well, Zacharias knew that he and Elizabeth were no longer kids. Zach was in his 60s. Liz was done with menopause. And they never had a baby. And understand, in Jewish culture, barrenness was a blight. A woman without a child, she was considered cursed by God. She bore an awful stigma. Well, so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, by the time of the first century, there were so many Jewish priests that they had to be divided up. They were divided into 24 divisions. Each division served in the temple for two weeks out of the year. Some of the priests would tend the fire for the sacrificial uh, altar. Others would prepare the lamb. Still others would trim the lampstand or change out the showbread. Perhaps the most important job fell to three of the priests who attended to the altar of incense. This was the altar that stood closest to the Holy of Holies. One priest would clear off the burnt ashes from the day before. Another priest would then light the fire and heat up the coals. And then a third priest would come in and sprinkle incense over the coals as a symbol of the people's prayers to God. Most priests lived a lifetime without ever being chosen for this last special honor. On this particular day, the lot fell to Zacharias. Verse 11. Then 
an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. That's what always happens when a person in the Bible sees an angel. You remember, angels are an ominous sight. They're not the cute little cupids you like to think they are. They're heavenly warriors that strike fear into men's hearts. And this angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. In Hebrew, it's Yohanan, which means Yahweh is a gracious giver. He says, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. This was, this was one portion of a threefold vow that John would take for the rest of his life. You see, the angel tells Zacharias that John is to be what Numbers calls a Nazarite. The vow of the Nazarite was a special sign of devotion. Numbers chapter 6 outlines this vow. The Nazarite promised to do three things. To drink no wine, to never shave, and to avoid anything dead. Here's what's going on. The Nazarite was the antithesis of what makes this world go round. Wine produces physical pleasure. That's what most people are about, physical pleasure. Hair relates to outward beauty. If they're not trying to get high, they're trying to look good. Real glory, or or life in, uh, uh, the life in death, the whole idea of him not touching anything dead, that was all about mortal glory. So the Lazarite was about physical pleasure, outward beauty, and mortal glory. Whereas the life God has designed for us is just the opposite. And the Nazarite's life stood for the values of God. Real pleasure is found in the spiritual, not in the physical. Real beauty is found inwardly, not outwardly. Real glory is eternal, not temporal. John's life, his vow, pointed men to the life that God intended. You see, the vow of the Nazarite could have been taken for a specific period of time, But three men in the Bible were actually lifelong Nazarites. One was Samson, one was Samuel, and one was John. And notice what else the angel says. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. John radiated spiritual power before he was potty trained. Even from his mother's womb, he was energized by the Spirit. And that means, by the way, if an unborn fetus can be filled with the Holy Spirit, then I think it's safe to assume that God considers that fetus a legitimate human being. It's sad to think that in our country it's legal to kill a person that God can fill. The angel continues, speaking of John in verse 16. He says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Here was John's ministry. He was to be like a basket of breadsticks or cheese fries. 
He was the appetizer. That was John. He was to set the stage for Jesus. John was often called the forerunner of Christ. And he carried out his ministry with the same fierceness and the same fearlessness as did Elijah. John was respected by adults and kids alike. John bridged the generation gap. All ages are attracted to boldness and to genuine faith. Well, in verse 18, Zacharias responds to the angel. He says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. Notice Zacharias. He's a diplomat. Notice he calls himself an old man, but he doesn't dare call Liz an old woman. He's more tactful than that. When referring to his wife, he says, well advanced in years. He's an old guy, but he's not a dummy. He's learned a thing or two over the years. And here's a lesson that we can learn. There's no statute of limitations on your prayers. I'm sure when the angel said, Zacharias, I'm here to answer your prayers. He said, prayer? What prayer? He'd stopped praying for a child a long time ago. Decades ago. But just because you've stopped praying for a thing, doesn't mean that God has given up on answering that prayer. Now remember the occasion. Zacharias is in the temple, in God's presence, by the altar, near the Holy of Holies, burning incense that represents the people's prayers. An angel appears to him to inform him that God is going to answer his prayers. But what does Zacharias say? He says, how can this be? We're too old to have a baby. And the angel takes offense. He says, and the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. In other words, do you have any idea who you're talking to? I'm Gabriel, man. Are you know who you're arguing with? Zacharias was questioning the word of an archangel. And Gabriel tells him in verse 20, But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. If all Zacharias can do is spout his doubt, then God's just going to shut him up for nine months. He'll be mute for the entire time of Elizabeth's pregnancy. You know, sadly, there are folks today who all they can do is shout their doubt. It's a shame. You know, if you can't say a positive, encouraging, faith-filled word then you should just mute it too. Elizabeth Browning writes, the one without faith should be silent. It's amazing how faith grows when you're forced to stop talking and start listening. The next words that will fall from Zacharias' mouth nine months later will be words of praise. And the people waited for Zacharias and they marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, He could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. After a priest would finish his his work in the temple, he would reappear to the people, to the waiting worshipers, and he would pronounce on them a priestly blessing. But when Zacharias 
comes out on the edge of the temple and he opens up his mouth to speak to the people. Nothing comes out. He's frantic. He doesn't know what's happened. And, and here he is playing charades with the crowd. We're told he was beckoning with them. He was trying to, to you know, communicate through sign language. They finally concluded, man, this guy must have seen a vision. And so it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. This was the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. What a busy year this was for Gabriel. Two miracle pregnancies in half a year. This time, though, he's dispatched to Nazareth. To a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Nazareth was a tiny little hamlet in the northern region of the Galilee. In the first century, it had a population of maybe 50, 60 people. It was the equivalent of a truck stop on a trade route. Joseph and Mary, they were rural, rural, country folk. That's what they were. Mary was also a young girl, maybe a freshman in high school, 14, 15 years old. And we're told she was a virgin. And if you question the meaning of that word, don't. The Greek word is very adamant. It's the word parthenos. It means a woman who is never engaged in sexual intercourse. Now understand the virgin birth was strategic to God's plan for salvation. In order for Jesus to die as a substitute for our sin, he himself had to be sinless. And since sin is passed down from our first father, Adam, to avoid Adam's sin, Jesus had to be born fatherless. A virgin birth was necessary. A miracle occurred in Mary's womb. The Spirit of God overshadowed the virgin. The seed of God mingled with a human egg. God became a man. His mother Mary made Jesus human. God's Spirit made him divine. And notice too, Luke says that Mary and Joseph were betrothed. In biblical times, marriage consisted of three steps. There was engagement then betrothal, then marriage. A betrothed couple were legally bound to one another, but they lived separate lives domestically, and they maintained their virginity until their wedding night. Well, verse 28 tells us, And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Notice Gabriel doesn't say, Blessed are you above women. No, he says, blessed are you among women. Mary was a special woman, no doubt about it. But she was a woman nonetheless. She was not a goddess. She was not someone who can influence your prayers. She doesn't mediate between man and God. She was simply a young girl who found favor in the eyes of God. You know, one of the reasons I am a Protestant, a Protestant, 
is that I'm still protesting what official Roman Catholic doctrine has done to Mary. It's taken this beautiful, simple young girl, and it's weighed her down with all kinds of mythological baggage. Mary was not a perpetual virgin, as Catholicism teaches. According to Matthew 13, verse 55, she and Joseph had at least six other kids after Jesus was born. She holds no office or clout in heaven. According to 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Mary was never sinless. She wasn't immaculately conceived. She didn't ascend into heaven. We don't refer to Mary as our lady in contrast to Jesus as our Lord. She was a lady, a lovely lady, but she's not our lady. Notre Dame, which means our lady, might be good in football, but it's bad in theology. Roman Catholics have fumbled the ball by elevating Mary in unbiblical ways. And I'm sure Mary is embarrassed by the whole thing. If she was here, she'd tell us to just stop that right now. In verse 29, Mary responds to the angel. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. The Hebrew word is Yeshua or Joshua. It means Yahweh is salvation. What a fitting name for our Savior. And Gabriel discusses Jesus' future. He says, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel identifies Jesus as God's son and David's son. Remember in Hebrew thought, the son of a dog is a dog. The son of a man is a dog. Man, and the Son of God is God. That means the Son of the Highest means that Jesus is God, that He was divine. And as Son of David, Jesus inherits all God's promises to David. This means that Jesus will sit on Israel's throne and reign forever. You know, the Hebrews called David's future successor the Anointed One, or literally the Messiah. In the Greek, it's Christus or Christ. Today, Israel is a democracy. But when Jesus returns, he'll reign supreme from Jerusalem. He'll hold eternal sway over all the nations of the world. And Gabriel's prediction of the child's future, it it was a mouthful indeed. It must have caused Mary's mind to swirl. His prediction spans the ages. Its implications are global. But before Mary could think about it, her mind was still stuck on the earlier revelation. I'm going to have a baby, she thought. And Mary knew what it took to have a baby. That's why she asks. Then she said to the angel, how can this be, since I do not know a man? 
And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Here is genetic engineering of the highest order. How this happened, we're really not sure. But Luke assures us that the paternity test, the DNA evidence, it would have pointed to God. It's been said, you grasp this miracle not by figuring, but by faith. In verse 36, the angel says to Mary, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. Elizabeth was probably Mary's cousin. And Liz was a model for Mary. Both women were in the midst of a miracle pregnancy. And both believed, verse 37, for with God, nothing will be impossible. I like what Pastor Chuck says. He says that the two most important verses in the Bible are John 5, verse 30, which says, I can of myself do nothing. And then this verse, with God, nothing is impossible. Hey, always keep those two verses in tandem. Of myself, I am vulnerable. But with God, I am invincible. In Christ, all things are possible. And then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Oh, to me, Mary's response may be the greatest expression of devotion in the history of the world. Here is a 14, 15-year-old little girl. Her whole life is suddenly turned topsy-turvy. Think about it, ladies. Her marriage plans have been interrupted. Her life's trajectory has been altered forever. Suddenly, Mary's once secure future is in turmoil. What will Joseph think? And yet, Mary replies with unflinching, unrestrained, unconditional surrender. I love her words. Let it be to me according to your word. You know, if God chose to redirect the course of your life, to spin you around on a dime, would you be game? What what would you think? Would you be so quick to make God's word your will? Mary was totally yielded to God. And then verse 39 tells us, She arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Mary's will was quick to yield, but her mind had a lot to mull over. She decided to travel south and spend some time with Elizabeth. This would take some of the pressure off of Mary. She was a young virgin maiden. You can imagine the more pregnant she showed, the more stares she received walking down the sidewalk. This kind of gave her a chance to take a breather. It took some of the pressure off. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's an example of prenatal revelation. John leaped in Elizabeth's womb when he sensed that he was in the presence of the Messiah. Liz got a kick in the ribs all of a sudden. 
Apparently, the unborn baby isn't just mentally aware and emotionally cognizant, but he's also spiritually sensitive. He's human in every sense of the word. You know, it's so sad today. Four-month-old preemies are saved in one hospital, while just down the street in the clinic, eight-month-old, completely viable babies are killed. It's tragic. Oh, that more parents were filled with the Spirit, like Elizabeth, and not their own selfishness. When the Holy Spirit came upon Elizabeth, she prophesied words from God. She says, Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. What an encouragement Elizabeth's words were to Mary. You know, back home in Nazareth, no one understood her predicament or even believed in her story. But her cousin not only believed, she too was a living miracle. Mary had faith, but what great joy this was when someone affirmed her faith. And it was Elizabeth's affirmation that prompted Mary's song. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. Mary was so elated that she explodes in praise. She sings a song. Today it's known as Mary's Magnificat. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. Notice out of Mary's own mouth here. Rather than claim sinless perfection, Mary mentions, quote, her lowly estate. She was a sinner, just like the rest of us. She knew that. But she goes on. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And His mercy is on those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. In short, God is the God of the underdog. Notice He shakes up the status quo. At times, he turns the tables on the haves, and he chooses to bless the have-nots. Mary, of course, was the classic example. Here, a girl, barely out of middle school, is chosen for the honor of mothering the Messiah. And Mary's words, by the way, are quite controversial. Wherever they're read, they upset the apple cart. They, they They create turmoil within society. William Temple was a missionary to India. And despite opposition from the locals, people were coming to Jesus. But Temple was concerned about further angering the authorities. And so he asked his fellow missionaries, whatever they do, not to read Mary's provocative song. He knew that this song threatened the status quo. Temple knew the revolutionary nature of all true praise. And then Mary ends her song with a bang, verse 54. She says, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy 
as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Oh my, Mary and Elizabeth, they must have spent these weeks searching the scriptures. And through their study, she saw how that the birth of her son was the fulfillment of God's ancient covenant to Abraham. Jesus was the seed given to Abraham through which salvation would come. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered. And she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. And so it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. Now since God gave new names to Abram and Sarai when he instituted circumcision, the rabbis thought that it was appropriate to name their boys at the time of their circumcision. This was a Jewish custom. But it wasn't customary for Jews to name their son after their father. I don't know, but there must have been some special reason why everyone expected Zacharias to name this child after him. But that's when his mother answered and said, No! He shall be called John! But they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. Here, here, Zechariah is still making signs. Remember, he couldn't talk, but it could be that he also couldn't hear. That seems to be the implication. That's why they're, they're trying to communicate with him through signs. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, his name is John. And so they all marveled. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them. And all these things were discussed throughout the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Boy, the miraculous events surrounding John's birth caused the people to know that God had special plans for this young man. They kept their eye on him. Verse 67. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. You remember what brought on Zacharias' sentence of silence? It was a word of doubt. Nine months later, he now breaks his silence with a word of praise. Apparently, one of the best ways to cure a cynical attitude is to just shut up for a while and meditate on God and God's greatness. And when you open your mouth again, you'll be ready to praise Him. Chapter 1 ends with two hit tunes. Mary's song, the Magnificat, and here, Zacharias' song. It's called the Benedictus. Or the blessing. He begins, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. Zacharias has just named his baby, but the focus of his prophecy is on Mary's child. God has raised up Jesus, he says, as a horn of salvation. That we should be saved from our enemies 
and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, now he's speaking to his own son, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. John was Messiah's advanced man. It was his job to prepare the nation for the coming of Jesus and to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Here's one of the most beautiful names for Jesus in all of the scriptures. The day spring, or literally the sunrise. I remember when we first started our church 30 years ago, we almost named the church Day Spring Fellowship. I love that name. Jesus is the day spring. He's the sunrise. Our world has been shrouded in darkness from the first man onward. But Jesus brought the first glimmers of morning light. Jesus dispelled the shadows. Jesus warmed all that he touched. Jesus is the dawning of a brand new day for all those who follow him. And then verse 80 speaks of John. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. And we'll read about that day next week.